I can't remember the last time I cried while watching something. Like I'm always, I know that I've, I know that people do it, but I was just like always like, oh, I've never cried while watching anything. Now I can't mm-hmm. say that anymore. <laughs> what was it? So it's the weirdest of things because on paper I shouldn't have cared at all about this, but there's a show called Hunters. Oh, really? Right, yeah. Okay. And it's very inglorious bastards e right mm-hmm. in in how it's a bunch of nazi hunters in america and new york you know they're hunting down nazis it's really cool it's fun it's kind of pulpy but also you know they do flashbacks to the holocaust mm-hmm. and one of the characters backstories is shown very later on in this like much later on in the series and because you've gotten to know the characters and these specific characters um who the flashback is about they're very kind of like the comic relief as it were their story being as difficult to watch and emotionally charged as it was during the episode just like completely destroyed me Hmm. right um and this isn't like the whole what have you seen section i wanted to talk to you about you know how i think that for me there's a big disconnect emotionally in on that level when i watch a movie Mm -hmm. because I know it's a movie and because I know how the sausage is made and I do a lot of behind the scenes research and, you know, for every movie that I watch and, you know, I'm always obsessed with, oh, that's, that's that actor or that's that actress and and all those things. So it's very difficult for me to connect with something like that. I mean, I've cried during a couple of video games, right? And that in itself just sort of tells me how that medium can affect me or people or whatever. But movies has never really done that for me. I was wondering, like, what your kind of take is on that. And, you know, when was the... Have you ever cried while watching something? Has it ever brought you to tears? I am a blubbering mess during most things that are designed (laughs) to manipulate me. Um, And you'd think that I wouldn't be because, as you say, I know how the the old sausage is made. The sausage. Sausage. Um, <laughs> How are you spelling that? That's S O J with an apostrophe above it, E E E E G with a with a, with a with apostrophe above it, with yeah. an accent, yeah, yeah, yeah. or a, or a sausage, a sausage, yes, uh, and then uh, and then an I E. I remember I was watching The Green Mile, and there was uh, Mr. Jingles, the the mouse. And uh, and the whole thing with John Coffey and whatever, and I just like I was a blubbering mess by the end of that movie, and I've seen that quite a few times before. This was like the last time I watched it, so it was a couple of years ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just there, there, yeah, there are lots of films that I. I, I think I got very close when I was watching. Um, oh, hold on a second, your mother listened to this. <laughs> I mean, oh, we to all cry, do it. To cry, we all do it. Yeah, yeah we all to, cry. Right, right, right. We all cry. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. gotcha yeah. Into tissues. Mm-hmm. Um, are those happy, happy tissues, tissues or, or sad, sad tissues? tissues? Are those sad tissues or happy tissues? Um, maybe you should just give me a minute. We watched that the other night as well. <laughs> oh, fuck's sake. Sorry, please prepare a cold open. No problem, Johnny. Let, please just sign this disclaimer, this waiver here that says well, that, that you're going to let me get to seconds. it. <laughs> you're going to let me get to go it. Go on, go on. Um, a Quiet Place, the beginning of that film. Oh, that was tough. Um, almost got me. Mm-hmm. I remember Shosh was like, not crying, but she was like holding on to me very, very tightly. Right. I think anything to do with children gets me. 
right? Labyrinth. And that's what that was about, like with uh, what do you mean, labyrinth? Labyrinth is a, is is tough for me to watch. Uh, like the very beginning when they when they take the baby, when she goes into the into I know the what you're talking about. And the baby's like, gone. It's very it's Muppets. I know it's Muppets, but that that moment where she where the baby stops crying. And she goes into the bedroom and she sees that the baby's not in the crib um, anymore. That moment. Mm. Before the Muppets. Before the Muppets. Um, I mean, there, there are Muppets going, oh. Did she say it? And all that stuff. I'll say the words. No, I mustn't. I mustn't say. I wish. I wish. Is she going to say it? Say what? Say it. Shut up. You shut up. But um, See what? no, because I have that. I, I identify with that. You know, my, my kid cries in the night and I get really, really pissed off. And what yeah. happens if suddenly the kid's not there anymore? That's a nightmare. Yeah. So, yeah, go on. No, just anything about kids being in danger. Yeah. You know, harm. That was what the thing in Hunters was. And I was just not, not expecting it. Mm-hmm. I was I was just like, it was in the middle of the day. And then I, what was it? I, I went a little early to get the kids. Mm-hmm. A little early. An hour early to get the kids. Because I was just like, I have to see my children. Mm-hmm. It's just very. Uh, I've never reacted like that to any, especially a TV show. Mm-hmm. Right, never, never got me there. I anyway, was just curious. Well, that died and petered out like a <laughs> fight in a cupboard, right? Should we uh, uh, have an episode? our seat number hello and welcome to what's our seat number the insane fever dream death trap game show based off of the famed podcast of the same name players are strapped to electric chairs with a digital clock framed above them the clock will reveal to the audience what the players seat numbers are while the players need to make wild guesses what it is because they are blindfolded the players will have 15 seconds to make a guess at which point piranhas will begin eating their feet an anvil will also fall on them at some point oh yeah and they're in an electric chair so that will probably go off as well at some point i'm simon gross an escaped mental patient johnny gross is my brother and he's my accomplice for our helpline please call the number at the bottom of your screen Screen. Yeah. In a podcast. It's a game show. It's not a podcast anymore. Oh, I see. Hello. You got anything else? What, in the intro? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was it. Wait, it wasn't enough? Oh, and also, Gladys Knight will be singing her famous rendition of My Money Don't Jiggle Jiggle It Folds. <laughs> okay, it's time for some movie news. Movie news. Movie news. We always wait. Yeah. We always yeah, wait. We always wait. <laughs> James Bond author Charlie Higson blasts No Time to Die and names another spy franchise as the best Bond films now. He says, and I quote, I think that was... Wh- Agent Cody Banks. <laughs> Agent Cody Banks. <laughs> he says, and I quote, I think that was wrong. I went to see No Time to Die with my oldest boy, Frank, who is 30, and he said that felt like a Bond film made by people who are embarrassed to make a Bond film. Truth. Dang. You had to watch two films in advance to know who such and such and such and such is, and you think, oh, fuck off with that. Make it a new mission each episode and let him be Bond. They overcomplicate him. The best Bond films are now the Mission Impossibles. There is Mm. no inner life. It's just, whoa, look at that building. I'd love to climb it and blow things up. Um, I agree. Funny thing, though, the last three Mission Impossible movies... uh, rely on you knowing what happened in the previous one in order to understand who everybody is yeah that's true however they are they are more james bond than james bond is correct and i wish that they would just sort of snap out of it and stop doing things like 
having comedy Russian guys going, oh, look, it's a building, and, uh, you know, killing main characters. Uh, anyway, TV and movie writers went on strike uh, last Tuesday for the first time in 15 years after negotiations with film studios failed to reach a new contract. Uh, do you know about this? Yep. I was wondering when that the was going to crop up. One, the last one was uh, 2008. It was the uh, the whole Quantum of Solace strike. And Heroes. And he- Heroes. Heroes. Did no. I say it wrong? No, I, say it wrong? I, don't know no. why, I don't know why I did that. Back to movie news. Sorry. Movie so ne- the writers news. are on strike. The writers, the writers are on strike. A very serious it, it, It's thing. bad. Um, yeah. The history suggests that the walkout could last weeks or even months meaning a hiatus in production from everything from favorite late night shows to hit streaming series. At the core of the dispute is the explosion in streaming services and its effects, including the erosion of writers' pay and job security, according to the WGA. Another point of contention is artificial intelligence, um, with uh, guild writers asking for strict limits on AI use in scripts. They don't want to rewrite material generated by AI, nor for AI to rewrite human-created scripts and they want union-covered material to be excluded from AI training models. The studios have so far rejected these demands, a position one writer described as insulting. Now, I agree. that is something I think uh, you would probably identify with, and I think I would as well, because, uh, I mean, you can probably feed uh, footage into a, into, a, into an AI and say, edit this for me and make it like this and this and make it this length and blah, blah, blah. There is now. Yeah. So uh, it, it basically, um, it basically is taking away jobs, I think. It, it could potentially. I, uh, I think that um, there are two schools of thought on the whole AI thing. Right. Well, there are several, but the main ones that I've heard are it's taking away our jobs, it's stealing art, you know, because when... But it know, doesn't the, have nuance. The art engines... Um, you know, like uh, Mid Journey or something. It's it's taking from existing art and cr- you know creating its right. own, right? So p- some people think it's you know stealing, uh, and some people think it's a tool, right? right? Um, now there's no denying that you know it can definitely help you um, just get a block of text down, which can sometimes be the hardest thing, mm-hmm. right? And then you can tweak it. So I can understand how that's a tool for some people, mm-hmm. but in order for it to be a tool, it needs to be regulated, right. right? And the fact that the studios are refusing these regulation demands, that they're, they're saying we want right. it to be regulated, um, means that they don't want to use it as a tool. They want to use it as a solution. I'll tell you what the what the stipulations are. According to the strike rules of the WGA, uh, writers can't do any writing or rewriting during the strike. They are barred from attending meetings or negotiating with studios, uh, pitching new projects, entering agreements to option their work, or even attending promotional events for existing projects. Uh, by contrast, they're allowed to accept payment for any writing that's already been completed. Uh, writer-producers, writer-actors, and writer-directors are allowed to do the non-writing portion of their job during the strike, but they're banned from doing any writing no matter how minor, such as revising dialogue or tweaking stage directions. Um, which is basically what happened. I mean, you look at... Uh, I, I remember reading about uh, uh, Daniel Craig talking about what the, what was going on during uh, Quantum yeah. of Solace, that he and Mark Forster were basically writing the script as, as they were going. Yeah. Um, and... I think the it's a pretty good film considering what the what the constraints were. I'm one of the people who likes it. I don't understand. No, what I know, but you can you is. can definitely see the uh, the the sort of the the shortcomings of it. And it's uh, once you learn about the about the fact that they were in the middle of a strike and they weren't able yeah. to you know to to actually have uh, Purvis and Wade. Uh, or uh, Paul Haggis or whoever was working on it at the time actually working on it. So, you know, you can see that 
there there were major issues there. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I hope, I hope that, that the studios see soon, sense yeah. because uh, you know it's quite it's quite. It's just the the insulting the insulting nature of it is what's pissing me off. Also, like, not they, not understanding the the nuance of a human uh, creating art. I mean, look, I scroll through Facebook and I can see these AI um, sort of suggestions of like. Uh, I don't know, Game of Thrones, if it was an 80s movie or whatever it is, I can always tell that it's AI generated yeah. before I've even read it. So, I mean, it's not like it's, um, I, I think it's gonna, it's a fad that's gonna sort of fade out after a while because it's gonna hit a brick wall. Mm. Um, anyway, uh, now we've got some, <laughs> got some whimsical news here. <laughs> Johnny's funny story. Here's a funny story. The Los Angeles Philharmonic performed on Friday night at the Walt Disney Concert Hall, and during the rendition of Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony, the Los Angeles Times reports that a woman began to audibly scream and or moan during the performance. Several different people described the outburst as screams of joy that sounded like the woman was having an orgasm. <laughs> the woman, a woman near the woman... A woman, a woman near, the near the woman. This is great reporting. <laughs> a woman near the woman by the woman by the pulpit. Just watching you struggle through this is this funnier than the story. A woman near the woman in question named Molly Grant, that's irrelevant, told the Times, I saw the girl after it had happened and I assumed that she had an orgasm because she was heavily breathing and her partner was smiling and looking at her, like in an effort to not shame her. It was beautiful. The woman in question has not been identified and likely won't be at this point as I'm not sure anybody is ready to publicly out themselves as the person who had the most famous public orgasm since when Harry met Sally. But if there's any possibility that she might, it's that nobody seems to be looking to shame the woman or even have a laugh at her expense. Most of the people speaking publicly seem to feel that this was a beautiful expression of emotion attached to a piece of equally beautiful music. Sometimes you receive something. and This woman definitely received something. Her partner was sure. smiling at her. I'm not sure if Shut that up. Was... You're not sure what to do with it. I'll tell you, I've going back to what we talked about in the intro. <laughs> what? Yeah, okay, crying and orgasm in the cold yeah. open. Yeah. yeah. No, um uh, to be honest, uh okay, I'm not sure I've ever had a uh this An kind orgasm. of this, this kind of uh reaction to a piece of music, but it could be because I was really really tired, but the other night after my daughter had fallen asleep on me, I was listening to some John Williams tracks. Um, actually from uh, from the movie that we're going to talk about today and it was the leaving home track when uh, when uh, in Superman mm. the movie when Clark Kent is saying right. goodbye to Mark Kent and um, and it's, it's just absolutely beautiful you can probably hear it listener uh, playing behind what I'm saying and I, I got quite emotional <laughs> I got quite emotional that and Yoda's theme from uh, from uh, uh, Empire Strikes Back and mm -hmm. you know there's and Leia's theme um Lay and Hans theme, um, you know. There's a, there's a lot of tracks that that make me emotional, but I've never been aroused by music before. Right. That was movie news. Movie news. Today I don't have a quiz for you because this is going to be a bit of a bumper episode. There's a lot to talk about, and uh, let's just get right into it. Today we're talking about Superman the movie and Superman Two, uh, both the theatrical cuts and the Richard Donner cut. Superman. Superman. Superman who? Exactly. Ha ha ha. Very troll. So, uh, would you like to start or should I? You go first. Okay. Let's talk about context for Superman the movie. Oh, that's hard. I can't remember my... The first time I watched it. Can you remember generally the uh, the sort of... 
imagery that I remembered. Not not necessarily the first time, but I assume that you saw it several times during your youth. Yeah. Um, your youth. Definitely, I remember watching Superman 2. Superman 2, yes. A lot. For anybody that doesn't know, there's, there's one moment in the entire run of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, where there's an exchange between Lex Luthor and his butler, played by Tony Jay, and we sort of latched onto it Back Us in, latching on to random pieces of dialogue? Yeah, back in the 90s, and it's just never left us. It's the way that Lex says, Superman. <laughs> you do it so well. Knock, knock. Who's there, sir? Superman. Superman who? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's very droll, sir. John Shea. Classic. Go on. Superman. Superman. Brilliant. I love it. <laughs> Uh, oh, it gives me shivers. Um, Mufasa. Ooh, do it again. Mufasa. Enough. Right. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I watched Superman 2 a lot. And yeah. uh, I, I remember the Eiffel Tower thing a lot. Right. Like the, the Lester cut. Right. <laughs> um, I, I think that I, I remember always um, preferring to watch 2. Mm-hmm. And never really seeing one properly until I was older. I, I had that as well, and I know exactly why. Because when I was a kid, I always wanted to see Superman. And it takes about 40 mm. minutes yeah. in the theatrical cut, anyway. It's about I'm not an sure hour about in the, what I watched. Right, because you watch the, the TV extended cut, yeah. which is about three hours long. And then there's there's also the special edition, which is about two and a half hours which, long. Which, by the way, listener, that wasn't on purpose. I, I found this version, and I saw it was three hours. And I was like, really? Well, it's been a while since... I mean, really? All right. <laughs> right. So, and I watched the theatrical cut because it was uh, it's the only one that was released on 4K, and I wanted to check out my 4K, um, which is gorgeous, by the way. But I want to talk about the, uh, the sort of inception quality of something that's always been in your consciousness and always has been in the mm. public eye, the idea that you can't imagine a time when it didn't exist. Yeah. So the, the John Williams theme, for example, and Christopher Reeve playing Superman, at some point that was not a thing. Yeah. And there, there was a before that. But nowadays, if you say Superman, they don't go, oh, Superman. They go, you know, there's like, there's something inextricably uh, woven into the fabric of that S that is the John Williams theme music. And it's not just that as well. It's so nuanced because there are, there are like, you know, probably at seven or eight different themes in the movie in that, that movie recur, alone, yeah. but anyway, I'll get to that. Um, so yeah, the, there is the, just something that I I don't remember the very first time I saw it because it's always been in my consciousness. Uh, Superman the movie, I remember. I do remember seeing Superman two at a friend's house, and I remember the Niagara Falls sequence when he saves the kid, yeah. and uh, and then specifically when he flies down and ducks behind the hot dog stand and yeah, comes out as Clark Kent. Yeah. So there were the very, very specific things that I remember. And I remember my friend narrating uh, during and telling me what's going to happen. I remember that with Turtles as well. Like we were watching Turtles. I was watching Turtles at a friend's house because I wasn't allowed to watch it at home. And uh, Raphael pops his head out of the sewer. And then the, the kid... Raphael! The kid, uh, the kid whose house... <laughs> the kid whose house I was at was like, Raphael's looking around now. And I'm like, great. <laughs> so you got that at home and you got that at your friend's right. house. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's that that every time I see that scene of Raphael poking his head out of the sewer, that's always going to be go, there. He's dead. He's dead. 
um yeah so uh so yeah this kid was narrating is like he's gonna you know he's, he comes out he's clark kent now you know like that kind of thing good but anyway times. yeah good times it's uh it's it's always been there it's always been in my consciousness yeah it's always been in mine as well i just don't remember the first time i saw it right 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 such a shame yeah but the, so there is that i mean it, it it i remember as a kid it always took a long time for superman to show up um but nowadays obviously that's uh to, I, I find that to be very valuable and I enjoy that a lot. There's a very David Lean quality about the movie. It's very large. It's very epic. It's shot in in scope, and it uses every inch of that frame. Jeffrey Unsworth's cinematography, especially in the first half, the uh, the Krypton sequences are very Shakespearean. The um, you know, you've got that uh, that sort of Gone with the Wind style um, section in Smallville, mm-hmm. and it's very epic, and 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 it's being lifted by the uh, not only by the emotion of Jonathan Kent's death, but yeah. also and the fact that he's powerless to save him, which is also why. I feel yeah. that the the Kevin what Costner's, they did in Kevin yeah I was yeah, just gonna it's, oh, just, it's written don't take my shit so tell me what you think tell me what you think of well that. no I'm, it's you've just said it is that I I was constantly comparing both of these movies to the Henry Cavill movies right and the thing is is okay Henry Cavill I completely is forgot that they existed to massive be right he's yeah. very very muscular and all of that but they focused so much on you know, throwing down and, and, you know, massive explosions and, you know, destroying cities and the spectacle of it that he doesn't save a single fucking person apart from that family at the end, you know, when, when he snaps Zod's neck to, to stop him from killing them. And he's also all the way through, um, you know, doing that sort of "Ah!" like yell thing that he does. So when he does it at the end, it doesn't it doesn't pierce in any way. It's not emotionally like you know, it just it just him yelling again. Yeah. And when you look at Christopher Reeve, he's just all those moments are very few and far between, right? He's very you know, but he, I, I don't want to talk about that. But I did want to say that um, the reason that I was comparing was I noticed the Kevin Costner thing where it's like you know he so for, stops him, right? Right, and it's like. It's such a pointless. The whole point is that it's a heart attack. The whole point is it's something that it something he's, he's going to blame himself for, but yeah. he actually has no. It's really not his fault. Right. Like in the Henry Cavill movie, it is his fault because he literally could have gone in and saved him. It, he, the thing is that the difference in in uh, with the Christopher Reeve movies, there's no sort of like light speed. You know, there, there is a little bit of that in the Donner Cup, but he's not always like you know, like yeah. like sort of um, like rushing as a like a sort of blur yeah. of uh, of red and blue you know he's uh, he's he's it's it's kind of it's 70s it's kind of slower yeah um whereas in the in the cavill movies he's he could have just been a, a blur yeah. he could have just gone and no like one would have seen whipped him. him out of it and no one would have seen him um and and i just feel like it's it c- totally misses the point of yeah. that entire it was so thing. disappointing to me and yeah. I, I i wrote here that um you know kevin costner while great casting um was completely misused in the movie uh his role is to be a catalyst um and a lesson but the other and thing there's is no that lesson in cavill's one right but like, he's, he's no also extremely there. like i i don't particularly agree with the with their take on him that he says no you shouldn't have done that you should have let them die you know maybe you should have let them die you know like and it's just that's not jonathan kent i just wanted to help I know you did, but we talked about this. 
right? Right? We talked about this. You have, oh, Clark, you have to keep this side of yourself a secret. What was I supposed to do? Just let him die? Maybe. There's more at stake here than just our lives, Clark, or the lives of those around us. When the world, when the world finds out what you can do, it's going to change everything. Our, our beliefs, our notions of what it means to be human, everything. I read it a little differently, that scene. You know, I was like, kind of, maybe this is off topic. I don't know. I feel no, like go ahead. Thing. No, just the, the whole thing that he kind of looks like he doesn't know how to answer him. And he's like, what should I have done? Let them die. Because mm-hmm. he was trying to impress upon him how, you know, dangerous that was, you know, to right. the secret. And I think they have a similar conversation in Smallville, right? But it's, you know, Jonathan Kent isn't saying you, you should, you should have let them die. He's like, maybe, I don't know. But, you know sometimes you know bad but things it's more happen. it's more nuanced i would imagine it was more nuanced in smallville what i think is great about glenn ford is that his screen time is very very limited and mm-hmm. you don't see anything of clark growing up really until he's a teenager until he's until you see him on the field yeah um and, and i'm talking about the football field um so he has like a very short amount of time to make an impression and that one walk and talk is basically all you have and then, you know, and then he has a heart attack and he falls yeah. down. And for some reason, just by virtue of those three minutes or something like that, you it, you feel it in the in your gut. Have you ever seen the Jonathan Kent heart attack in Smallville? I haven't. No, I don't, you I should, don't remember that at all. You should watch it. It's like, I think, season five or six. Mm. Um, Spoilers. But it's... Um, you should just watch it because of the context of you having watched these two, right. you know, versions. You should mm. see that one too. And uh, Lionel Luther is like threatened, um, I think, just Clark's identity. Like, you know, he knows. And Jonathan beats the shit out of him in the barn. Like he like starts punching him. Mm-hmm. And as he's like, you know, saying to him, don't come near my family again. You can see on his face that he's realizing that he's started to have a heart attack. And he, you know, just sort of says, no, get away from my farm or something like that. And mm-hmm. then he like walks out. It's just really, really emotional. It's really, uh, yeah, you mm-hmm. should check it out. It gets right. very emotional. It's very emotional indeed. Okay, so let me just sort of circle back to, to where I was going with this. Is that um, is that the first hour or so before Superman actually appears. It's like the, a big epic David Lean style filmmaking. And it's almost uh, in contrast to the second half. And I think that uh, the Batman Begins took a leaf from this directly. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, the, you know, as a kid, it was uh, it was like, come on, where's Superman? But but now I think that that development for that first hour is uh, is incredibly valuable to sort yeah. of get context and depth for the second half. The thing that we we often miss is that he's an alien, right? right. And he was brought up by these two people to be very very decent. Mm-hmm. And how does he get from being Clark Kent to Superman? And it's when he discovers his heritage, right? right? And and he learns about his homeworld, and he learns. And and I felt that the just the whole translation of Man of Steel to be more alien, to be more kind of like weird tech. It's not crystals. It's like yeah. it's very it's very sort of sci-fi. The Codex. It's very very sci-fi, mm-hmm. and it's very yeah that that extra stuff. Hello, I'm your father, Jor-El. 
G'day, mate. How's it going? Sorry, go on. If Jor-El was played by the Crocodile Hunter. Jor-El is played by Russell Crowe. I know, so, but it was how right. you just, yeah. All oh, right, mate. Oh, oh by the way, I'm really looking forward to watching The Pope's Exorcist because... The what? The Pope's Exorcist with Russell Crowe. Oh, oh you, haven't, you haven't seen the trailer no. for that? Okay, you need to watch the trailer for that. Um, it's yet another promise of a outlandish Russell Crowe accent. He's, he speaks with an Italian accent throughout cool. the entire movie. Cool. And... Um, fighting demons I, I just yeah I'm, I'm excited to see that okay <laughs> people have said it's absolute crap I'm like bring it on much like what they say about this podcast can we get to it please oh go right. on then no what was I saying I don't remember now you've thrown me off completely thrown me off yeah oh, it's right. more alien tech it's more out there yeah so I'm saying like it's 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 hard for me to see how he takes that side of his personality soda, soda. How he takes that side of his personality that he's now sort of merged it with his Earth one and become this savior. Right. Right. I don't under. So he always felt just more alien, more disconnected, more disjointed. Whereas, you know, Clark in, you know, Superman the movie discovers this heritage and it kind of makes sense to me how this then translates into him you know, merging those two parts of his worlds together. Right. And then from there, we, we get to Metropolis and we're introduced to the, to the bad guys. Um, and I, I just wanted to sort of establish my, my thoughts on this, that, the, the, you know, you've got that, that sort of Otis theme. Mm-hmm. It's also become our holiday theme. Right. And it's very, um, it's very comedic, uh, but at the same time, there's a, there's a tone that's established that Donna establishes. Once you get to the Richard Lester material, either what he shot for two or the entirety of three, you can see like how you can throw all of that comedic energy over the top. Yeah. You know, that it's like, it's just a little bit too much. Anyway, so, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I always used to think that, uh, that it sort of, the, the quality kind of dropped when, when they got to Metropolis, but nowadays I'm kind of seeing it differently. Like, mm. I think that it's, uh, I think that it's, it's funny. There's a, there's a little bit of levity in there, et cetera, et cetera, but it doesn't, having watched one, two, three and half of four now in sequence, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't sort of undermine any of the sort of Americana that's been, uh, you know, that sort of gee whiz energy, the sort of earnest tone that's been established mm. by Donna. Uh, it doesn't undermine any of that, but it sort of underscores it. There's a little bit of levity in that. Um, I especially love the line. Mr. Tesmarker, when I was six years old, my father said to me, Get out. <laughs> Before that. Little like barbs that they throw at each other. And then once you get to, to the Daily Planet and Clark meets Lois, you've got this whole sort of Hepburn and Tracy thing going on. I was super fascinated by every choice that Christopher Reeve made as Clark Kent. In so, that. Just yeah. every little shuffle or or dis discomfort, every little um, stutter that he does, you know. Right. Mm, mm, of course, yeah, and and oh, oh, of course. Lois. Oh, the whole thing with the bottle. The bottle is. Yeah. She like bangs it on the table. She gives it back to him. He can't get it open. It's it's ingenious. Right. It's just I've never seen it done like that before in any other version. Not even so, what was his name? Who was Brandon Routh? Who was supposed to be a continuation of right. this Superman was not doing it right. My wife and I were having a chat about this because we've been watching Superman and Lois, and she's just constantly making comments about the whole glasses thing, which is. Something that I, you know, I, I still think is ridiculous, but I've kind of grown to accept, 
you know in superman media yeah in general mm-hmm. in general um because it's you know but the, but the thing is that when you when you take superman the movie with the richard donner cut of superman 2 mm. y- you can see that in the in the entirety of superman the movie she's not looking at him yeah she doesn't notice doesn't him doesn't give a shit yeah he's like completely invisible to her even when she's talking to him he's like uh you know like she's she's kind of she's looking straight ahead or she's doing something else or she's you know she's yeah. not really looking at him and then when when you get to the to the first daily planet scene in the richard donner cut of two that's when she's like actually sees him yeah. and, and then starts to draw the glasses on the superman yeah. picture in uh in the, it also in the it makes me happy that she caught onto it very very quickly very quickly as soon as she noticed clark though that yeah. was the thing so so I, I don't see Margot Kidder's version of Lois Lane as the idiot that Terry Hatcher's version yeah. of Lois Lane is because what is it like three seasons that, that she takes before yeah. she notices and yeah. Dean Cain really does have absolutely no exactly exactly the, the same. same the glasses are like thin framed there's no uh, there's no difference particularly in his hairstyle so it's slightly slicked back but it's like you know um, and the uh, and his manner is exactly the same yeah. as Clark Kent there's no difference whatsoever and she's like a close quarters with him all the time so there's the, really no also, reason why she shouldn't notice in superman and lois he is the same right as well. like he he's, he's just like you know the same hunk wearing glasses he's not hunching over at all he's not right. trying to be dorky he's not clumsy in any way yeah there's no difference in his uh in his demeanor and i think that, that it's not the glasses it's the whole charade it was another thing that i appreciated about smallville was that they tried to it's once he and Lois start dating, mm-hmm. right? She's saying, you cannot become who you need to be if, you know, Clark Kent is walking around being super coordinated and strong and people are intimidated by him and, you know, you have to be something else. And he really right. pushes back on that. Like, he pushes back against it for a while. Like, he doesn't want to make a fool of himself. He doesn't. And then, you know, there's just this thing where someone um, bumps into him and he and he goes, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, you know. And he he does like a very dorky kind of thing, and he he slouches, and the guy looks at him, and he's like, y- yeah, you you should be. It's like a character mm-hmm. who was previously intimidated by him, mm-hmm. and you see him starting to work towards that right. version, right? And he was obviously influenced by Christopher Reeve, and I think that that really just sort of proves what we're saying is that he's just no one else has done it like him, because so, I don't think anybody yeah. else gets it. I I really recommend it. It's a good show. Right. just goes on a little long right i also like the the transformation like every time he sort of transitions from clark kent to to yeah. to kal-el yeah you know for example when in after the, the after in the apartment after the balcony sequence yeah. where he where he takes off his glasses and he's about to tell her and you can see him change his posture and his entire sort yeah of, he lifts his head up right and it's the same thing that happens even even as early as that screen test that they used in the donna cut when she shoots at him yeah and he suddenly snaps out of it yeah it's a great performance i you know i and i i think it's it's recognized i don't think people are, are unaware of the fact that it's an incredible performance and he is a uh he is the definitive superman but um i just i just feel it needs to be said again the guy was just brilliant i think that i don't think it's unrecognized i think it's just it's something that's sort of taken as given right you know like it, it's it's taken for granted it's i i think that a fuss should be made about how talented he is as a yeah. dramatic comedic physical performer. physical yeah. actor he can do also the action. noises off that's what i was gonna say right. is it noises off his 
movement, his control of his body, his timing, his every facial facial expression, right. the the intonation he puts, he's so funny. Right. Uh, he's like one of the best characters in 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 that movie. It's kind of weird to me that. You know, when people say, oh, Superman's so unbelievable, you know, because all that separates him is the glasses. And it's like, it's not just the glasses. Right. It's his posture. It's his behavior. It's his, you know, it's his mannerisms. It's his, you know, he's the slicked fact that his he hair wants back. to be it's, completely you know, unnoticed. Yeah. Uh, he makes himself invisible. Also, talking about physicality, Richard Donner talked about how he made himself aerodynamic when mm-hmm. he was on the wires. And you can see him banking. The first time I ever saw Chris really fly was at Shepperton Studios where we built Fortress of Solitude interior. They said, okay, let's try it. And they rolled cameras and he took off the takeoff. The landings were terrible, very difficult to coordinate the cable movement up and down and lateral and without jerking him all over the place. And he took off beautifully. It's the first time I saw the takeoff. And it was Chris that made all these things work because it wasn't just this, he flew. He really flew and he, moved his arms in a very fluid way and he came at camera and for some reason he actually banked his body and he swung around this thing and flew past us. Camera stopped rolling, there was dead silence and like 50 people all of a sudden started just cheer. It was hard to believe we actually did it. We actually made a man fly. And the other thing is you were talking earlier about uh, about Henry Cavill being ripped. Um, and the, the thing is that nowadays modern super suits are kind of they have like shading at the very least even if they don't have yeah. padding they have a certain amount of shading and texture to suggest to suggest musculature muscles, yeah. and um and christopher reeve didn't have any of that he had a blue leotard and you can he see he actually got in shape for it yeah you can they, see they the, wanted to give him a a muscle suit and he was like no i'm gonna right. he put on he made it up to 225 that's yeah, what he says a, he is in the yeah, movie there's a behind the scenes uh, photograph of him lifting weights and you can there's see a like video how ripped of him right lifting you can find it on youtube he's mm-hmm. he's lifting weights and he's talking about it and i think in the video he also talks about why he's doing that right it's it's uh it's he committed to this thing just so hard right and you can tell how much he loves the character right and margot kidder also talks about that that she was uh, they were up there on the wires together um, and uh, when they were flying together and, and she uh, she was like joking around and stuff like that. Margot and I were like brother and sister. You know, we really cared a lot about each other, but um, we had very, very different styles of working. And Christopher felt very strongly about staying in character all the time. I was uh, 24 and dead serious. Um, with dead being the operative word there really. I, on the other hand, got really bored during the flying scenes because there were Chris and I strapped together for 10, 12, 14 hours a day. So I would hide books down my front or try and tease Chris and he'd be going, shut up. And we would bicker and bicker and bicker and the poor crew would look away and they'd go action and then suddenly we'd be madly in love and then they'd go cut and we'd go back to our bickering. The other thing about that is that um, is the codpiece. You want to mention the codpiece? No, I wanted you to tell the story. You wanted me to tell the story. So I'll, I'll play the clip of Margot Kidder, if I can find it, that, uh, that she talks about um, Alexander Salkind, who is the, uh, the father of the producing duo. Uh, this Alexander and uh, Ilya Salkind that produced the movies uh, and actually hired Donner in the first place. And he said that they wanted him to have a bulge. The exact quote is, is he has a big one or he has nothing? 
Alexander Salkin pronounced very early as we were to begin shooting about Superman. Either he has a big one or he has nothing. So they put poor Christopher in this various assortment of sizes of codpiece under the suit and the red underpants. And some days Christopher come out and he'd be out to here, which would make me go ding, 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 because they were all made of metal. And Christopher would go, stop it, stop it, get her, stop it. Or they'd be flat. And there was this endless discussion as to the size of Superman's equipment. And it always cracked me up when Johnny would do that. <laughs> right. And now every time, because you told me about that story when he lands uh, on the boat, I think. Is it on the boat? I think so. I don't know. And, I, I, and, and you were like, see, see, see that bulge there. <laughs> you like, told me that story. I remember. I, I, I saw it when I was watching it this time around. I saw it on the balcony scene a lot. Right. That, that it's kind of, it's kind of uh, conspicuous, shall we say? Yeah. Kind of, uh, kind of. Uh, David, I like David Bowie. very much, Lois. <laughs> David Bowie, <laughs> David Bowie and Labyrinth, kind of, uh, kind of conspicuous. But yeah. yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> That that one's slightly more worrisome because of the fact that he's talking to a sixteen-year-old girl. But whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, I wanted to mention also the uh, the flying scene. The originally that was supposed to be uh, a musical number. Now Superman was never meant to be. Why are you rickrolling me? Uh, no, because yeah. <laughs> That's what that is. No, I know. I okay. was just like, that would have been a great, you know, background track. So, flying sequence. So originally <laughs> that uh, that theme that you can hear in the background now, the do, um, was supposed to be sung. Um, and I believe it, it it was recorded by Maureen McGovern, but Donna vetoed it. And thank God that he did. Oh my goodness, the, um, the video is so funny. Right. <laughs> I sent uh, Sai a video. I mean, I was trying to just trying to find the song, but somebody had done a uh, a, a, mo- a Superman the movie montage underneath it, and um, there's there's all sorts of things. Like, there's a heart wipe in there uh, that cracks me up. Oh my god! Yeah, the timing of everything. I couldn't stop laughing. Yeah. So it's a it's a very uh, as you can hear it's a very sort of seventies carpenter style um, cheesy ass yeah. <laughs> rendition which, of something. Which, you know, I always thought that. You know the lyrics that are being used in in that video are her voiceover in the end. It's, yeah, in the remind? end, in the end, Margot Kidder recorded a voiceover, which is uh, which is still pretty it's cheesy. Pretty cheesy. I was gonna say, I, I always thought that was the cheesy, the cheesiest thing they could have done. Right. Like, nope. The apparently thing is, not. The thing is that they should have played it out completely si- over, over complete, si- not complete yeah. signs over the over the the soundtrack over the over the score. Um, and that theme, I love that theme. The love theme yeah. is, uh, you know, that uh, it's just perfect. And then you've got. Uh, here I am, like a little girl, quivering, shivering. Here I am, like a kid out of school, holding hands with a god. I'm a fool. Will you look at me, quivering, like a little girl, shivering? You can see right through me. She's been established as this strong, independent woman up until now, and then suddenly she's uh, reduced to a quivering mass. Well, I <laughs> Just mean, when this this man comes so into was her life. I. He's flipping charming on that balcony scene. Like, first of oh, all, yeah. we've skipped over the helicopter. Yes, right. yeah, yeah. The helicopter sequence is really cool. The helicopter sequence is really cool, and um, uh, and also the the full on use of that score is just yeah, but. You know, he he sort of keeps Donna keeps the theme yeah. to himself, mm-hmm. right? 
for, for a while there until he finds you know like the the revolving door and he goes through it and then you've got it's all right miss i've got you and she's like you've got me who's got you great line right easy miss i've got you you you've got me who's got you <laughs> i really love the delivery of the line who are you a friend well, I certainly hope this little incident hasn't put you off flying, miss. Statistically speaking, of course, it's still the safest way to travel. Right. Wait! Who are you? A friend. Bye! So well done. For the first time this time, I was watching Kidder during that scene. Yeah. And he says, uh, I hope this hasn't put you off flying, miss. And she's like, she's kind of like nodding and shaking her head. Yeah, and like yeah. the, it's just the way that she's reacting. It's, it's really good. Yeah. I really appreciate her. Uh, I really appreciated her performance uh, this time around. I appreciated her performance this time around in the first one and in the scene in the second one. In the scenes that are all Donna, basically. Right, right. We'll get to how you can tell the difference between the Donna cut and the uh, Lester cut later on. But um, but there's definitely something about that first block of shooting um, that she was she was really on point and very very absolutely. But she's per- perfect Lois Lane. Yeah. Um, and then in the second one, she was going through a divorce. Uh, she was unhappy about Donna she being smokes. fired. She drinks. Yeah. And you can see that she's gaunt and wrinkly a little bit more around her mouth, yeah. around her eyes, and that she's uh, that she's kind of phoning it in a little bit, yeah. I think. There's more here, though, because right after that helicopter rescue, there's a really long montage of him going around saving right. people in the city. I don't know how long it is in the, in the cut that you watched, mm-hmm. but there were a lot of things that he did. Like, you know, he... He stops a so, guy climbing up a building. Yeah, he so there's the, the guy, thing. the guy climbing up a building. There's the there's the boat of criminals. There's the cat that he saves there's out of a tree. That he saves out there's the, tree. the there's Air Force One. Right. Yeah, Air Force One. And that's it, I believe. Okay. Well, it's long, it's, but you know, it just made me realize Cavill never fucking bothered with any of that shit. So that was the thing. I was watching the Batman last night with the yeah. wife, and that was the first time she'd seen it. My third time, and I was completely like. Mm, completely captured mm, by mm, it oh mm, that was what mm, that was what i wanted to tell mm, you mm, she ruined that theme for me why because she quite rightly wait pointed what out, are you going to say is it going to ruin the theme for me as well very possibly but that's, like that's why you're theme. here shit um it she quite rightly pointed out that it is basically the imperial march dun, 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 i know dun, what the imperial dun, march dun, dun, is but Dun, okay, I'll tell you what. Dun, you dun, can dun, lay dun, them one on top of the other and see if they if they fit. There's a couple of extra notes in the Imperial March that aren't in the in the Batman theme. I the want Batman you theme. to lay them in the episode, one on top of the other. You, <laughs> me, and the listeners are going to decide. You can all tell us on Facebook if you think this is true or not. One, two, three, play it. Then there's the scene after the saving where he goes to the right, fortress. Right, no, no, no. Oh, sorry, sorry. So that was what, that was what I was going to say. So, oh, yeah. so you're watching um, the Batman. So we're watching the Batman, and I realized right at the end that aside from the guy that he uh, 
that he kind of sort of saves at the beginning in the subway. It's more about beating up the criminals, though. Yeah. Um, right at the end is when he's when, is when he starts actually saving, saving people, people, and it's the first time you see him saving people. Yeah. And um, and it made me realize how little of that there is in the in Snyderverse. Are in the Snyderverse, right? Yeah. And then and then right from the off, that's what Christopher Reeve's Superman is doing. Yeah. Is that he's going around saving people, and then in the extended cut, he's talking to Jor El back in the fortress, exactly. and he's telling him how much he he enjoyed it, what a and rush he, says, he got from it. Jor El says to him, "I anticipated this," and he's like, "You no, couldn't, have. you couldn't have, you know." Right. It's such a good scene. Then he says, "Do not punish yourself for your vanity, my son. Learn to control it." You enjoyed it. I don't know what to say, Father. I- I'm afraid I, I just got carried away. I anticipated this, my son. You I, couldn't have. You couldn't have imagined how good it felt. Do not punish yourself for your feelings of vanity. Simply learn to control them. It is an affliction common to all, even on Krypton. Our destruction could have been avoided but for the vanity of some who consider us indestructible. So all of those scenes, and also in the Donner cut of uh, Superman 2, only serve to to sort of highlight the fact that this is an alien that has grown up a human and is fallible. Yeah. And uh, and has human emotions. And, and that is something that got lost in the later installments. Um, I mean, look... I, there was a, there's this one scene in Superman four that really pisses me off, mm. um, and and it, it'll go back to we'll, when we talk about Superman two, we'll talk about the uh, the the uh, the forgetting kiss, um, but uh, but what he does is he th- he throws himself and Lois off the balcony, mm. takes off his glasses, and uh, and then she goes oh, Superman because she's obviously forgotten that he's Superman, right? And then they fly around, they do a redo of the whole. And then they come back to the balcony and she goes, oh my God, I, I never knew blah, blah, blah. And he goes, uh, I just needed somebody to talk to. And then he talks to her for a few minutes and then he kisses her and then she forgets again. And then we're back exactly where we started. <laughs> Literally five minutes. Wasted time. Exactly. And there's just no, there's no like, I mean, obviously we're it's talking also about. also not a power of his. Right. <laughs> we're talking about Superman 4 here. It's not exactly, you know, a deep, uh, you know, well-written or made movie, but it's just it just goes to show that the, you know, the the sort of the the humanness and the caring quality just kind of gets lost. Yeah. There's something that I feel was completely missing from the Richard Lester cut of right. Superman, Superman 2, two. Uh, which in this version in in the first movie and in the Donner cut of very strongly present right. is the relationship between him and Jor-El. Right. Because in Smallville, the relationship between him and Jor-El is very antagonistic. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, he's always, uh, he's either fighting him on, on things or, you know, Jor-El is punishing him by taking away his powers or, you know, whatever it is and tests and they argue in the Snyder one. So it, it's almost an afterthought. You know the the relationship between him and and, Jor- and and then but in this movie it's so this is what I wrote listen to this mm-hmm. I wrote so so Jarrell says to him if it were not for vanity I'd be able to hold you in my arms my son if it were not for vanity why at this very moment I could embrace you in my arms. My son. And underneath that I've written, 
What the fuck? Why is this movie hitting me so hard this time? It never has in all these years. Like, right. it, it, uh, it's such a good performance on both of their parts. Right. They weren't in the room together, but it still works really, really well. I think, I think they may have been for some of it, but, um... You think? Yeah. Because he's a big, giant, floating head. Yeah. No, but for example, maybe when he comes and he touches it, I don't know. I, th- there was a, In the there second was a, one. There was an interview. Well, well, I mean, the the whole first block of shooting, they were shooting uh, Superman 1 and 2. Right, right, not, right, not right. Not just back to back, but concurrently. So when any time they were in the Daily Planet, they shot all the scenes for Superman 1 and Superman 2 in the Daily Planet. Um, so it's, um... It probably was very confusing, but like lucky all of that stuff, did. all of that stuff was shot together. All the stuff in the fortress was shot together. It's very lucky um, they did all that. Yeah. So, uh, so the the thing about uh, about about Marlon Brando is that there are loads of stories, and I'll get to it when we get to Trivia Corner. But there are loads of stories, and, and Christopher Reeve was quoted in an interview as saying that um, he thought that Brando was phoning it in, mm. and he thought that he he w- he hopes that he doesn't get to that age and just not give a fuck about anything. But that just goes to show you what a powerhouse Marlon Brando is, that even when he's phoning it in, yeah. he's just amazing. I don't know. In that opening scene, it didn't feel like he was phoning it in at all. No. No, not at all. I think he. I, it looks like he's making really conscious choices. So it, d- it does kind of suggest that they, that they might have worked together at some point, because okay. otherwise, how would he know that he was phoning it in? Um, but anyway, the... I'll, I'll move on to uh, to the uh, to the next part of it, which is basically that there's this whole scene that was cut out of the theatrical cut where um, Superman goes into the tunnel leading up to Lex's lair. Uh, th- he's like throwing all kinds of things at him, like you know, yeah, like shooting bullets, at him, machine guns, and, and yeah. fire and yeah. and ice and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And uh, and I just I always remember watching that scene. I think it came out in like 2006 when Superman Returns came out. They got they dug up the extended edition. That was the first time I mm-hmm. saw it. Um, and I always thought that is so quintessentially that's like ripped from the comics. I was I was scene. like a pig in shit. I hadn't seen it before. I've never right. seen any of this extra footage, and I was eating it up. I was like, this is awesome. Right. That he's you know, uh, you know, the, just the way that Lex is also saying to him, you know, the pressure is still on you, Superman. You know, because right. there's more stuff coming. <laughs> it's right. brilliant. So the whole plot basically hinges on on Lex destroying the San Andreas Fault, yeah. collapsing all of San Francisco into the sea, um, and uh, and sort of rebuilding. Um, and he, he's got this obsession with real estate. That's the whole thing that carries over into Superman Land. Returns as well. Um, so uh, so that's the that's the whole point. And then um, Superman then has this kind of Sophie's choice of which uh, nuclear missile to. Uh, to go after first because he can only stop one from hitting but he right? never lies never lies so uh, but he does though he absolutely lies he spends in his entire life lying because he's mm. keeping a secret um so uh, so that that's what's As interesting Superman, about that. he never lies yeah so he's caught out by uh, by miss Tessmarker because uh because lex is uh has put this um, necklace of kryptonite around his neck, and um, and you know the. But, the, but you well, said her name wrong. Mr. Spocker! Mr. Spocker! It's not really explained. She's how, his lover. Yeah, it's not really explained how Otis uh, comes into comes into the picture, but uh, but it's just you know there's a th- group of mm-hmm. three 
villains basically and um there's uh, the one the one uh, missile is going to the west coast and the other missile is going to the east coast and on the east coast apparently miss desmarker's mother lives and uh, she uh basically blackmails superman into going to save her mother first mm-hmm. um and she only takes the kryptonite necklace off him um, and once stops him promised. to stop him from drowning in the swimming pool uh, once he's promised to go and save uh, to save her mother first. So that uh, is comes at Lois's expense because Lois is uh, in San Francisco yep. and she gets buried during the uh, the tremor that's caused yeah. by the uh, by the missile. So then we have this uh, this fucking ending that I've always hated and apparently was repurposed because it was supposed to be on the end of Superman 2, which is Superman flying around the world backwards and reversing time, which I always find is a little bit of a cop-out because, you know, that, that's kind of basically saying, oh, we got this, we got this, uh, this hole that we can't dig ourselves out of. Lois is dead. How do we do it? Oh, let's reverse time. Now she's alive again. Well done. Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. How would you do it? I don't know. I'm not sure what the idea was. I think it's here in Trivia Corner, but the original idea was was quite different. Okay, well, we'll see when we get to the corner. However, I have never had a problem with that ending, and even watching it this time, just because of... It feels like they were peppering it in there with, you know, you mustn't uh, interfere with right, human so there's events no, that's and, the, that's and, and history. The issue, I mean. That's the issue I have with it, is because there's no repercussion for him interfering with human history. They established that. I'm not sure if the other 20, 25% that they were going to shoot of Donna's stuff would have addressed that in Superman 2. Maybe. But, um, but he, he never gets called out for that. There's never any repercussion for that. And the mechanics of it don't make sense. They never have. So he uh, he saves uh, the eastern seaboard from the uh, from from the one missile. You're right. It doesn't make sense. And then I get he it. goes back, and then he rewinds time. So technically, so he would have to save both missiles. Technically, Stop again. Jim. Well, I mean, you would think that there would be another Superman on the eastern seaboard um, dealing with that, and then he would have to save. Then he would have to deal with the western, um, with the west coast um, missile again. Yeah. And then, uh, and then you know, the earthquake wouldn't have happened. But then Jimmy Olsen comes along and says, "Oh, great, Superman! Just leave me in the middle of nowhere during an earthquake." So the earthquake did happen, except he rewound it, so it didn't happen. Do you know what happened to me while you were off flying around? I was almost in an earthquake. I had this gas station blow up beside my car. There's telephone poles falling all over the road. I'm almost killed, and I caught the whole thing off this stupid car under the gas. I'm sorry about that, Lois. But I've been kind of busy for a while. I'm sorry. It's all right. Hey! Thanks a lot, Superman. They put me on a road in the middle of nowhere during an earthquake. No food, no water, snakes everywhere. I had no idea if you were coming back. I mean, where are you going to come back? Huh? So none of it really makes any sense, okay? If they would have shot it so that you can see two supermen... No, you're right. There's there's a lot of cut problems Cut out that line, it. maybe. I'm just saying I've never yeah. vehemently been opposed to it like you are. Narratively, it doesn't make sense. Uh, plot-wise, it's, it's a major plot hole. But the, um, but the emotional uh, aspect of it, I do really like. Because you've got... Um, screaming. First of all, that, that, that moment where he cradles her head Mm -hmm. and you know because it oh like because he you know her head's about to to sort of smack on the ground when he's like lowering her down and then the scream and that Mm -hmm. that, i always get chills from that the you know him like flying up into the clouds in in anger and despair and grief screaming down his face almost all of all of that looks like it's panels like ripped from a comic book right and then jor-el um telling him you know the, the memory at least of jor-el telling him that you're you know you're forbidden to interfere with human history and that should have had some kind of repercussion in superman mm-hmm. too 
forbidden for you to interfere in human history. One thing I do know, son, and that is you are here for a reason. All those things I can do, all those powers, and I couldn't even save him. If they would have gone all in on that and and tried to to sort of cut around that to make the whole time travel aspect of it makes sense then i would have accepted it mm. um because it does work on an emotional level on a character level mm. and then there's the whole idea of what superman 2 was supposed to be which is that the that the original start of superman 2 was the missile mm-hmm. that he threw up into space now um exploding and breaking up the phantom yeah. zone and the three uh, the three kryptonians escaping that's what it should have been, to be yeah. honest. I don't hate the ending, but then the original ending of Superman 2 was supposed to be the rewinding time thing, and I don't see how that works any yeah. better. So anyway, we'll get to that. Trivia. Trivia. Corner. So a trivia corner for Superman the movie. Uh, on his first day on set, Marlon Brando suggested to Richard Donner that the cameras roll during rehearsal. Brando reportedly said... Who knows? We might get lucky. According to Donna, that very first take was the one that was used in the finished film. Brando was notoriously lazy and was constantly pulling little stunts like this to lessen his workload. Christopher Reeve even complained about it in interviews, saying Brando was phoning it in and it shows. Don't agree with that, but anyway. um, That's kind of savvy, to be honest, because he got it on the first take, so why do the rehearsal? Um, Initially initially i don't know why i'm saying like that initially gene hackman refused to cut off his mustache to play lex luther in early one sheets of the movie his face is featured with a mustache before richard donner and hackman met face to face donner proposed to hackman that if he would cut his mustache donner would cut his too and hackman agreed it turned out later that donner did not have a mustache at all he wore a false mustache that he peeled off at the last moment (laughs) (laughs) this this anecdote is the reason why I love Richard Donner. He's full of these. He was a joker. He was a trickster. <laughs> he used to pull this kind of shit all the time. And I... Uh, I, I wish that is I, so funny. I wish I would have met the I man. love that. Uh, <sighs> I don't know if you know this, but to maintain on-screen... Con- on-screen? Did you know, for example... Did you know, for, did you know, for example... Let's get started. Did you know that uh, to maintain on-screen continuity, Christopher Reeve dubbed all of Jeff East's dialogue as young Clark Kent? I did know that. His voice is never heard during the film. Yeah, apparently he wasn't aware that they were going to do that. Marlon Brando, this is the the uh, the, the percentages and the, the amounts and everything about uh, the whole Brando debacle with uh, Superman 2. Mm-hmm. He was paid $3.7 million plus a percentage of the gross for 12 days of shooting. The payment also covered the sequel, which was shot at the same time. Brando did not appear in the sequel because he'd sued Ilya Salkind, claiming Salkind had not paid him his percentage of the profits. He ultimately received about $14 million for 10 minutes of screen time. And this is the main reason why footage of Brando does not appear in Superman 2, the theatrical cut. It was Brando's idea to have Jor-El wear the same S symbol on his clothes that Kal-El would later wear as Superman. Brilliant. Yep. Uh, it's it's really funny that that's where that originated because it permeated throughout every subsequent uh, adaptation. Yeah. Um, it's the House of L. Yeah. Uh, Christopher Reeve was unknown at the time. The credits in nearly every trailer for this film list Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman before Reeve, mm-hmm. uh, which is ridiculous because his name is the title. Superman plays Superman, the main character, Superman. Yeah, I was pissed about that too. Um, the Marlon Brando around uh, 16 minutes into the movie Marlon Brando refused to memorize most of his lines in advance in the scene where he puts Infant Kal-El into the escape pod he was actually reading his lines from the diaper of the baby he told director <laughs> Richard Donner that the only way to keep his performance fresh and not over rehearse was to record the first time he read the lines okay I mean it works yes 
children of the planet Krypton. Um, during the scene in which Superman and Lois go flying together and then Superman flies away, there's no cut between Superman flying away and Clark Kent showing up at Lois's door. It's a wanna. Uh, this was done using a pre-recorded uh, uh, footage of Superman flying away on a screen with Lois standing in front of it. So it was front projected. Right. And then as she walks away from the balcony, she crosses from the screen to the set with her apartment where she opens the door to reveal the real-time Clark Kent. And I actually noticed the front projection screen in the, on the 4K uh, uh, transfer this time around. Cool. According to Jeff East, who played young Clark Kent, during the shot in which Clark jumps in front of the train, he was nearly hit by it. However, stuntman Richard Hackman, who is related to Gene Hackman, <gasps> grabbed him just in time and East avoided being injured. Killed, you mean killed. Murdered. Um, right. Uh, in its initial run, the film topped the box office charts for 13 consecutive weeks. Richard Lester agreed to work on this film because the Sulkins still owed him money for working on The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers. Okay. Did it for the money. Marlon Brando reputedly suggested that his cameo role as Jor-El be done by him in voiceover only, with the character image on screen being a glowing, levitating green bagel. For real? For real. This Dang. Is, this is, that guy's a nutcase. This is known. This is known. Brando reasoned that no one knows what the people on Krypton look like, but the Jor-El would know what people on Earth look like and would therefore make his son look human so he could blend in. Tom Mankiewicz even recalled that at one point, Brando pitched the idea that maybe Kryptonians do not even talk. They simply make electronic sounds that are translated through subtitles. Donna refused these suggestions. Apparently, they turned out to be a ruse that Brando used to test Donna. Okay. Yeah, he passed with flying colors. Trivia. Trivia. Corner. Come with me and step into the spine-tingling confusion known as size rambling cavalcade of nonsense. <laughs> as per usual, I will begin by naming the visual effects supervisor. 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 Um, the creative supervisor and director of special effects, Colin Chilvers was a key member of the team involved in enabling Superman to fly. What they did was they put the tagline on the poster, you will believe a man can fly. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they were like, okay, well now we have to kind of, <laughs> we have to do that. <laughs> we have to make that. And, and they, spent a long, they spent a long time trying to figure out how to get that to work. Mm -hmm. um, so they had to do uh, all sorts of things uh, and Colin Chilvers was integral to uh, making sure that the helicopter crash sort of thing looked right the earthquake scenes there was an unused tornado sequence that he was involved in that never yeah. got used mm -hmm. um, so the VFX team tried several techniques to try and make it look believable that a man could fly uh, the methods they tried included firing a dummy Superman out of a cannon uh, making it fly along wires and having a remote-controlled model fly about. Uh, they all had the same issue, uh, which was that they didn't allow for natural movement and looked stiff. Right. Um, I think there was even... They did an animation test as well, and that didn't quite right. go down very well. Because it looked like the George Reeves... Uh... Yeah, it was, too, it was too fluid. Right. So it wasn't... I, I saw that, and I was like, yeah, I, I, I think they made the right choice there. Reeve, I think, really helped... Yeah. sell mm -hmm. the aerodynamic movement like the way he pushes uh his body left or right or he turns it really pushes the believability levels up a couple of notches but anyway mm -hmm. finding the most convincing way to show reeve uh taking to the skies was one of chilver's uh sort of first challenges uh, a number of options had already been explored by other filmmakers including having the actor skydive from a plane 
with a parachute under his cape, which I mm-hmm. thought was pretty funny. Uh, other methods include a mannequin launched into the air by an air cannon mm-hmm. and a miniature remote-controlled Superman doll. Ultimately, several techniques would be employed, including filming the actor on wires and a mechanical arm. Hold and on, he- hold on. Let's go back a second. That Why wasn't that... Why did that... That, that didn't work? What? Having... The, the skydiver. Having a skydiver and give him a parachute under That the sounds cape? awesome. <laughs> I mean... You know, not for if me. Tom I'm not Cruise had to do a movie where he was flying, that's probably how he'd do it. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, think, I think the problem with that is they would have either had to have gotten uh, Christopher Reeve to do it. Right. Because they wanted to get those close-ups of him. You know, part of what sells it is that he's... It's it's also part of why I don't really like... I, I like that they sell the, the feeling of speed in, you know the more recent Superman movies, mm-hmm. the the airplane rescue in Superman Returns yeah. is incredible, mm-hmm. right? But it's all very obviously CGI. Right. And there are very few shots of him where it's him. They did a little better with Snyder. When Snyder. <laughs> but they still use a lot of CG. Um, yeah. and, uh, and it's great for selling the feeling of speed and oomph and power, um anyway why didn't they why why didn't they fire a mannequin out of a cannon that would have worked just fine um (laughs) okay so the zoptic optical process uh it's uh, another person who is credited with making uh superman fly uh is zoran uh Perisic, am I saying that right? I don't know. Um, he devised something called the Zoptic uh, for shooting a front screen projection with right. two zoom lenses, mm-hmm. one on the projector and one on the camera, and they're kind of locked together. And what this does is it gives the feeling that the actor is flying towards the camera and that the background is going further away. Yeah, right? it's kind of uh, a, a more primitive version of what they have go- going on now with the LED volume. Yeah. That the LED volume is uh, is tracked. Sort of, is tracked to the camera so that it can parallax yeah. um, the, the background so that when they move around the actor, the background realistically moves as a background would. Um, no, we were, we were talking about that last night with the with the Batman. Well, the, they were using the volume. They were using volume. They were using LED. Basically, LED volumes are just a big, huge wall of uh, of LED screens that um, that sort of you know create a background that has been sort of either pre uh, rendered or it's been pre filmed or whatever it is. That it's kind of like front projection, but uh, it's higher quality and it also casts light on the actors. And also the actors can act and, against and, Yeah, it. they can act and against something, especially... something very strong to anchor them into yeah, the scene. Especially when you're talking about something like The Mandalorian, yeah. uh, in which, you know, if they're flying in a spaceship or something and they've actually got something out the window that they can see what they're flying into, yeah. then, yeah. It's, uh, so it's I, I, like, I like where that tech has, has, has gone. Yeah, yeah. With the blue screen and optical technologies at their disposal... Disposal? Disposal. With the blue screen, not so easy, is it? No, with the blue screen and optical technologies at their disposal. This, <laughs> with the blue screen and optical technologies at their disposal, the special effects team could then devise ways to secure Reeve and others who he sometimes carries, such as Lois Lane, while acting out the flying scenes on a rig with an arm. Um. So there's, you know, a few techniques here. Right, mm-hmm. some of them that were pioneered specifically for this movie. There's blue screen compositing. There's front projection. There's all sorts of really cool stuff. Um, the destruction of Krypton was realized via hydraulics, 
uh, rigged underneath the set in order to make it move, coupled with pneumatic tip tanks to topple pieces of polystyrene and polyurethane that had been covered with, it is hard, with uh, front projection materials to give them a a Kryptonian glow. Yeah. There's just something that I wanted to say about all of this, right? Because there's a lot of jargon and, and whatnot. These are, there are a lot of out of date techniques here. But you really have to think about the ingenuity of... The thing- and we've talked about this before with, like, The Rocketeer and, and all those other movies that, you know, nowadays you just do something with CG and call it done, right? But they had to find ways that use, you know, light and mirrors. Like, front projection is is about, you know... it. it how, how would you go about explaining this? It's like that whole mirror thing from The mm. Mummy where they're, like, you know, mirroring uh, light to light up the whole room. It's like you've got the actors on one side of a screen that is, you know, it's got a, a image being projected onto it and it's, you know, the camera is filming everything through a, a, a two-way mirror, right? Um, it's 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 so intricate, intricate, and it has and to be very very precise, very precise and and genius. And it's like also when you look at the behind the scenes of Star Wars and how they did a lot of that stuff. It's you know with 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 um uh, with masks and 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 sort of alpha mats. Yeah, you know, and if, but you, the and if very you get something, it's the same thing with Roger Rabbit. If they if they had screwed up one of the passes they would have had to to scrap the entire thing. Like exactly. how many passes were they doing? Like eight, nine? A lot. Yeah. I don't remember the exact number, but it was a lot. And it's it's just, you have to appreciate that when when, when I watch an older movie, e- either with friends or with, you know, my wife, and, and sometimes it's a little bit, you know, oh, God, it just looks so bad. And I'm like, it, it doesn't look like it does now because the techniques now are a lot more digital, yeah. right? But these are all... In camera, some, sometimes in camera, sometimes compositing, sometimes, you know, what you said about the the front projection where, you know, Lois answers the door and right. Superman flies off. That's such a clever fix. I didn't know about that. I didn't notice that. Mm-hmm. But it's such a clever fix. So I was watching both of these movies and, and Richard Donner cut, I was kind of... I was kind of looking at the special effects, but I was like, it's it's incomplete and so I'm not really counting it in, in any way. So that's why I think that the uh, the the deterioration of the effects in Superman two, three, and four, and then you know later on is is just it just goes to show like how much care he put into it, how yeah, much care he, he 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 inspired his team to put into it. He wanted to deliver on a promise, and people wanted to make yeah. that work. You can see how much passion went into the the effects, and 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 it's. It's very evident also in the way that things are presented in the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2 in the, the difference between the um, the fight in Metropolis in the Lester version mm. and, and the Donner version. As we said, you know, there's a lot of com- comedy in quotation marks right. of, you know, a, a phone box falling over and a guy inside it still talking on the phone. Like, aha, uh-huh, very funny. But, you know, also <laughs> how the, how the uh, how effect whimsical. shots are... Are sort of placed. Yeah. Um, it's just. Uh, it's, have you, it's have you just seen Superman well four uh, recently? Not not since I was a kid. There's one shot of Christopher Reeve flying towards camera on a blue screen, mm. and he like sort of comes towards the camera and then like flies down right or down left or whatever it is, um, like out of shot, and they literally reused it 
three times in the opening sequence. Oh dear. And then several times throughout the rest of the movie. Oh dear. Uh, yeah. It, like th- that was really like you could see like how far the apple I remember from the tree. I remember having a conversation with a film student who had gotten my number from someone, mm-hmm. and so they said that they wanted to do green screen on their student film. And I said, "Pitch me the student film and tell me why there are visual effects in it as well." Right. Right. And they pitched me the film, and it didn't sound like it really needed it. And there was a moment where the character is. Uh, I, I'm not in, entirely sure what it was. They were standing on the floor and the floor is supposed to look like something else. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I said, yeah, that is something that you can only really do with a visual effect, but it's a hard visual effect to do unless they're standing on a floor that is made of green screen. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You know? um, Cause the character's also supposed to be dancing or something. It was, it was not like something where they were static and you could kind of mask around them. Like you could paint around them while they're dancing, but it's just a lot of work. Yeah. And they were like, Oh, can't, isn't there just like automatic software that can do it? And, and I said, no, if you're going to do visual effects and the visual effects are, as you say, this shot is integral to the story and there's a reason for it being a visual effect, then you have to invest the time in getting it right. And it's the same thing. With, it's not the same thing, but on, on, a, on a larger scale, these... These movies, you can tell where they understood that the visual effects are in support of the story and they cannot be done without them. And they invested the time in delivering on that visual promise. And and the fact that later on it just became like a, let's just fire him out of a cannon. (laughs) So listen, that's all I got. I mean, I think it's enough, no? Yeah. yeah. But um, I think that you need to look at all of these older movies, right? And understand just how much effort went into making it look the way it does. And appreciate that. Because now a lot of things are just sort of given to us by, by software. It's a funny thing, though, that... Um... Not, that not, that I'm, sorry, not that I'm disparaging the work that effects artists do now. It is a lot of hard work. I have done visual effects. I know how hard it is. I'm just saying that the techniques they were using back then were very sort of... Um, they had to think analog. about. They had to think. An, yeah, analog. Exactly. They right. had to think like that. And that is the end of the VFX ramble. Come with me and step into the spine-tingling confusion known as Sai's rambling cavalcade of nonsense. Drop page. Warbucks continue. Okay, so this is going kind of long right now. Um, I think we're going to stop it here. And uh, we will pick up the discussion, uh, more in-depth analysis of the Richard Donnerkart of Superman 2 in the next episode. Mm-hmm. 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 Are you excited? I'm very excited. Are you excited? I'm a, what, yep. I, I could have an orgasm at the opera. I'm so excited. <laughs> hey. It's not the opera. It's the symphony. You know, music. Uh, very well, good. Good. So, we will see you next week. Next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. What's our seat number? Mitch Tesla!